Good day and welcome to Overdrive, a weekly radio and podcast program that considers all aspects of cars and transport. I'm David Brown and in this program we have a road test of a Mazda small SUV, the CX-30. But we compare it to the 2002 Mazda 121 Metro, a radically change of style from the previous model and one that hinted at what was to come. Our reflection of the week comes from Toyota in their reply to a segment we did a few weeks ago where we expressed concern about their approach and speed towards decarbonisation. They have now provided some details on where they are going and how they think that reflects the needs of the time. And finally, in our interview, do you think your insurance is a fair reflection of your risk? Are you really a better driver than others and so should be rewarded? We chat to Simon Donovan from Fuse Fleet Insurance on the use of telematics to measure what is really going on with a specific car fleet, what the insurance rate should be, and how this all ties into better community policies to tackle climate change and road safety. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or any of the socials, iTunes, Spotify, Facebook or YouTube or Instagram. Look for Cars Transport Culture. This program was originally broadcast on the 25th of November 2023. This week we have been testing Mazda's small SUV, their CX-30. The terminology SUV now covers quite a range of vehicles from the rough and tough four-wheel drive right down to small practical runabout cars. As it turns out, at home we have a 22-year-old Mazda for short and emergency trips, which at the time it was made was a significant change from the previous model and was hinting at what the SUV category has now become for most manufacturers. I called on our regular commentator Fred Brain to help me discuss the comparison and began by reflecting on how we procured our old vehicle. Back in 2002, my dear mother bought a Mazda 121 Metro and uh, she kept it for quite some years. Uh, She has uh, since passed on and we've inherited it. So it is our little runabout car. I've just been testing a small SUV from Mazda, a CX-30, not quite their smallest, and it is an SUV. So let's talk about what the Mazda was and what perhaps it has become. Who better to do that than our good friend, mechanical engineer par excellence, Fred Brain. Good day, Fred. Good day, Dave. <laughs> I've said SUV. Now let's go back. The 121 started as a bubbly car, didn't it? Well, funnily enough, it started out, the 121, I was looking on uh, Wikipedia, and the history of the name tag 121 is quite interesting. It started out in 1975 as a two-door coupe based on the Mazda Cosmo, a rotary oh, engine two-door coupe, a lot, quite a big vehicle. It looked quite stylish, didn't yes. it? It looked. Yeah. Uh, it wasn't a little no. runabout car with made into a two-door. It was actually a sort of standalone car with a, yeah. a bit of length and a bit of style. Uh, yeah, quite Japanesey looking, but uh, for the era. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah, it was it was quite a reasonable vehicle. It then became the boxy sort of tall shaped vehicle in 1986, but it was based on a Ford Festiva, 
because there was a tie-up between Ford and Mazda. Yep. Then from 91 to 98, which was the little bubble-type 121, it became a Mazda, purely a Mazda again. And then it changed again in 96 to the 2002, which is the model you've got, to be based on a Ford Fiesta. Now, that was a huge change, wasn't it? Because you said it was a public car, quite right. And it, it was very different looking. Yeah. Good space inside. People loved it for that. But the boot lid was like, and the opening on it was like a post office box. You know, there wasn't a lot of opportunity to get anything big in there. No, no, that's right. It ceased being a, a lift back wagon type vehicle and just became a small bubble car type runabout. And now at the time then they went to this 121 Metro, which has all the design cues of an esky, like very square, <laughs> slightly rounded corners to look moderately trendy. At the time, I believe Mazda said that they were really moving in a direction of putting the sort of car that uh, was going to prove to be a utilitarian car. We hadn't invented SUV yet. And we hadn't really gone into four-wheel drives as more family-type cars. But nonetheless, that that was in some ways quite prophetic. It's interesting, though, uh, when you look at the history of Mazda styling over the years, though, they seem to go in years gone by from something that looked fairly uh, avant-garde and stylish and then next model, they'd come out with something really boring and staid looking. The Mazda one to one Metro, what we have, is being called bland, Yeah, which I think is almost being polite. <laughs> A very kind, kind <laughs> review of it, I'd say. <laughs> Although my mother had a Mazda 2, which was the 2002 model, which was the one immediately following your Metro. Mm. It was actually a Mazda design again, but it was actually styled in a similar fashion to your Metro, but they'd rounded the corners more and made it more stylish. But it was actually, I have to say, a great little car because it was like a TARDIS, which your Metro probably is as well. Looking side by side, there's clearly our old Mazda. It looks smaller, but the dimensions aren't necessarily great. Quickly, overall height, it's the new one is only 3% higher. The overall length, now that's quite a bit. That's 16% but I think that's a lot to do with the nose. If you look at our old one, it's a shorter, stubbier nose, almost as though it's a vehicle in the size of an old minivan, mm. you know, where you didn't really put any weight on having a stylistic front nose. You think the back looks a bit different too. They've extended the back a bit too, I think, but that's a function of styling the vehicle to make it look better from the rear, I'd say, uh, mm. whereas yours is more a sort of, You'd almost call the notchback rear on it because it's got a, almost a wheel at each corner of the vehicle. The kilowatts of power, this is where the differences are enormous. The old one, 53 kilowatts. New one, the biggest engine, is 139 kilowatts. That's 162%. <laughs> That's two and a, over two and a half times the power. Yes, yeah, and the same with the, uh, same with the torque. Uh, yeah, yeah, the difference is enormous. Interesting, though, the, the difference in weight of the two vehicles. Mm. One is about 910 kilograms. The other is 1,500. That's a 70% increase. So yes. you've got far, far more in the car in terms of 
features and, and other factors. And the seats are, are obviously more extensive, uh, you know, more, more padding and things than they were in the older model. You've got a whole host of airbags and safety equipment that all adds up, lots of little electric motors doing things, plus probably a uh, heavier chassis. We talked about the difference in size, but if you have a look in the back, I sent you a photo with the two rear doors opened. What do you notice about the older car? A lift back. A lift back, yeah. Oh, yeah, hinges from the top, top edge. It opens further, does it? Well, and wider, although the, the car in width, the new model is wider, but the pillars and the sides are far more substantial. And our little old 2002 Mazda 121 Metro, at times it's easier to put a, an object in like a chair or that into the back of it than into the back of some small or even medium-sized SUVs. Yes, yeah, I, I can believe that. Mind you, if you have a look at the photo too, the inside panelling on our car is falling off. <laughs> I, I read a review of the 121, our old car, and it said at the time, it was written, I think, 2006, there are good, reliable cars as long as they're not beaten around. And I thought, uh-oh. <laughs> we did look at the pricing and the consumer price index. Our one two one way back then cost about sixteen thousand six hundred and fifty, but more than ten percent extra for an air conditioning, one thousand eight hundred and seventy. Now that that's a total price of about eighteen and a half thousand dollars, which, if my calculations with CPI come into it, comes up to about thirty two thousand. Now the modern Mazda starts about thirty and goes up to forty four plus on roads. Both of those are, of course, plus on roads. So our old one is almost, in fact, slightly higher than the base model Mazda that you can, you can get now with so many more features. Was your Metro the luxury version at the time or was it uh, oh, the... Oh, come on, Fred. <laughs> <laughs> they might have only had one version then. No, no, they had a few roads, but you met my mother. You know, she would. <laughs> Luxury, no, no. Um, it, it wasn't the top one. I think the top one you could actually get with a 1.5 litre. Oh, okay. I call our Mazda 2002 model our sorbet car. It cleanses your palate. <laughs> if you've been driving a new car and, and you hop into another car, you can often judge it on the car you've just got out of. If you get into our little Mazda in between, it sort of wipes out. Yep. All that sort of cleanses the palate. Yes, yeah, yeah, like like wine tasting, having, <laughs> yeah. uh, having, having water and pieces of cucumber in between, <laughs> trying different types. <laughs> you are a very sophisticated person. Oh, yes, well. <laughs> Fred, uh, lovely to talk to you. Thank you very much for your time. Oh, that's all very interesting. <laughs> and that's Fred Brain, our mechanical engineer, comparing times past with times present and finding that we've come a long way and really the value for money is a major step, yet those old cars were good for what they were made and they lasted, in this case, at least 21 years. You're listening to Overdrive. A couple of weeks ago, Brian Smith and I discussed a comment that was made by a senior vice president from Toyota Australia 
where he said that most vehicles in our market are not suited to being battery electric vehicles. Toyota is a clear leader in Australian vehicle sales, and this is even more the case in regional areas. I believe in Northern Territory, they have had, or still do have, at least half the car sales in recent years. I approached Toyota to discuss the matter, and uh, they have now sent me a detailed reply, which I will put on our website at drivenmedia.com.au. Some of their summary points include... Toyota supports decarbonisation and they have an upcoming model for an electric vehicle, the BZ4X. But we, they say, also know it will take many years before we have enough battery material, charging facilities, renewable energy and affordable vehicles to support mass adoption of battery electric vehicles, BEVs. Toyota goes on to say that their global approach is that there are other workable paths that ensure no one is left behind on the journey to decarbonisation. Therefore, they say, we will maintain our global strategy of deploying as many technologies as possible. They did note that Toyota had pioneered hydrogen technology more than 30 years ago and that they see significant opportunities for hydrogen, not only for passenger cars, but also a big future in hydrogen for large commercial vehicles, including trucks and buses. They have now produced a high-ace van powered by a hydrogen-fuelled internal combustion engine, which is a prototype at this stage. They will be evaluating this vehicle by potential customers in infrastructure, delivery and other industries. It's industries such as these where refuelling infrastructure is less of an issue as these customers operate vehicles that come back to base on many occasions. Toyota has detailed in other messages about how this prototype is a normal internal combustion engine with pistons going up and down, but instead of injecting a fossil fuel into the cylinder head, they inject hydrogen, which is then combusted to produce the energy, which can then rely on a lot of existing technology. They go on to say in the note to us, in October we announced plans to assemble fuel cell generators at our Altona facility, and Toyota Australia has signed a hydrogen refuelling infrastructure memorandum of understanding with Hyundai Australia, Ampol and Pacific Energy. You're listening to Overdrive. Global warming is, first and foremost, a moral issue, and even road safety is often talked about in its broadest sense, because in that case we usually think of it happening to other people. But in both cases, while we need to think globally, we need to act locally. Now, achieving change is not just about asking people to do something. It's about setting up specific processes that encourage, facilitate, or simply indicate the best solutions. This can include encouragement through pricing, not just as policy, but as a reality of the financial costs of broad issues. I have on the line Simon Donovan, the Executive General Manager of Fuse Fleet, who's been talking about this uh, on a number of ways. Good morning, Simon. Good morning. Nice to meet you, David. Fuse is you underwrite. That means you set the price and perhaps yeah. make the policy. Do you do the whole claims process? Yeah, end to end. So we all thought. We have the authority from IAG to underwrite fleets. And yeah, we, we own it from then end to end claims, uh, pricing within, uh, obviously, some guidelines that uh, are set by our security. But yeah, we have 
um, end-to-end claims and uh, pricing uh, authority. Do you focus on fleets? We exclusively insure motor fleet. We've got around 75,000 vehicles across Australia, predominantly in the car rental space, uh, now moving into non-car rental. So, you know, you're, you're not-for-profits, you're builders, you're contractors, you run fleets. So we've pivoted this year into um, non-rental, and that's where our technology focus is, is coming with the new product, Fuse Fleet, which is essentially telematics-based insurance for motor fleet, but we can talk about that. So what that means is that you, by focusing on a market and the particular nature of the market, because insurance is often about the averages, isn't it? Yeah. And I might have my house or my car rated by the area I'm in, which is not wrong, but it is generalised. Are you talking about technology that allows you to judge individual fleets much more closely? Exactly, yeah. yeah. If you think about a pie, you know, you've got claims rating, how many claims you've had, you've got exposure, where your vehicle or house is. Um, And that's pretty much it, or market value. So in fleets, you have the cost of the replace the vehicle. So that's the pie chart, those areas there. We, We believe that's too general. You know, an Uber driver should be the same risk potentially as a, a taxi driver, for example, or a, or a, an electrician. And if you have the actual data, so this is where we we tap into the actual vehicle itself, produces a whole heap of data, or for a box that plugs in, we can actually then tailor insurance down to David's fleet of vehicles rather than generalising that David works in construction. Construction has all this history, therefore that is the price. So we're actually we're shaking up the insurance uh, actuaries, the health methodology at the moment. It, you know, it, it's, it's difficult because we are challenging the norm, but it means that the data that vehicle produces essentially creates, uh, uh, you know, a unique risk. Therefore, we can create a unique pricing. So you can say one fleet there versus one fleet there is actually going to start insuring the vehicles based on how the vehicles are used. And that's because of the data that's coming out of the vehicle. We then analyze that data and then we can actually produce dynamic pricing. It's a big market in uh, North America, in Europe, South Africa. Um, It's just we're a little bit behind over here in Australia, but we are challenging that and we're building out some hypotheses. um, And it will be the future of fleet insurance but also non non fleet as well with homes with smart readings etc so and that's all back david to data you just gotta you gotta get the data from somewhere and in motor vehicles the manufacturers have already got that capability they're holding that information very closely as you probably know they're starting to release that but the way around that is to plug in a device or download you can download apps today on your phone that tap into your bluetooth and then you can start recording how you drive the vehicle. The logistics industry has been getting involved in telematics very strongly. Yeah. That you don't send out a driver as a maverick and only talk to him when he gets him or her yeah. when he gets back to the thing. Yeah. You have a better understanding of what's happening. So that would then move to the point where a fleet might be able to say, well, the way we're operating now is a high, a relatively higher risk for insurance. 
we may be able to change the way we operate yes in order to reduce my premium costs 100 yeah the logistics industry has been you know it's 35 years old i think the telematics industry in australia and it hits the heavy motor vehicle space because of regulatory requirements but if you have look, we look after a not-for-profit uh, nationally have 450 vehicles they don't have to have any technology in those vehicles that's a big fleet of vehicles, but they choose to have the technology in the vehicles that have duty of care and they've got vulnerable uh, passengers, et cetera. But they're also mindful of cost. They want to make sure those vehicles are being used properly. So they invest in technology, which is the telematics. They use one of the, one of the 50 companies here in Australia. And then we actually access that data in the back end, some clever APIs set up between um, our technology provider and theirs. And yes, they can actually understand where the vehicles are, which- you know, best way to get to point A to point B. And they can do all this route optimization. They can reduce the case driven. Telematics companies today can analyze your fleet and tell you which vehicles are not being used. Therefore, you can reduce your fleet, which obviously helps from a cost environmental point of view. And it can also then make huge recommendations on, hey, these vehicles here are primed for electric vehicles. You can then start adapting your fleet now to the EV models. And that is all driven from accessing the data. So every answer or every conversation we have today is reliant upon the ability to access that data. Because otherwise, as you know, David, insurance doesn't change. There's no way to change a risk unless you're going to change the way the vehicle's driven. And the only way you know how the vehicle's driven is if you've got some access to the data. So that's where we've, you know, we're, we're hedging our bets. Not only how it's driven, it's where it's driven and when it's driven. Yeah, yeah, because there's times of, we've got analysis on times of day. Obviously, if you're driving between um, certain hours in remote areas, we've got some insurance, um, we're on risk with a bunch of fleets in remote areas. Your propensity to hit um, animals, single vehicle accidents ah. is high, very. I mean, it, it, you know, we have more problems now insuring our, remote rental fleets than we've ever had in our lives um you know because of the not non-stop animals being hit by by renters and by you know staff moving vehicles around we've never seen anything like it the role in that you have and yeah. and the data is giving is being able to make a more informed decision whether it be you underwriting it or be, whether it be the fleet operating it yeah correct so for example EVs in a different area, might well be because they are relatively quiet, certainly to a diesel engine. Yeah, you might well be able to deliver at different times of the day. Yeah, yeah. There's, I don't know. I'll top my head the research on the uh, the engine noise, and especially in metropolitan areas where you you can't hear the vehicle. But you, you tend to see, David, the EV adoption is not in remote areas because of clearly the logistics around uh, the charging. Yeah, well, it, it, it's again, it's a Completely, you could you could talk for hours about logistics. Our friends at the NRMA, as you'll know, they've they've adopted their own charging systems. Everyone's now, you know, in, in trying to catch up. But even you know, I'm from the UK, where they're a bit ahead still. You know, if you own an electric vehicle, you're still challenged with charging points. They're still challenged there in a very small country. This also then brings in that you are participating. In a, in a almost one to one relationship in in areas that have a broad policy impact. Now, for example, work from home. If you're saying then that if you work from home, maybe two or three days a week, 
you will not only judge that in terms of the output of the person, but one component might be the insurance cost. Yeah, yeah, correct. Yeah. So if you, I mean, that's interesting. So if you have a fleet of 100 cars and five employees have a company car and they work from home four days a week, that car doesn't move. You, the, the, our risk scoring on that vehicle is is all all about when the vehicle starts and starts moving, how that vehicle drives. So if it's sat there for four days out of the five, the likelihood is that safety scoring is going to improve. So the pricing on that, you know, the vehicle makes a part of the policy, the, pro- the whole fleet policy can improve. So exactly, yeah, I mean, I've never really thought about that, but yeah, 100%. But the other flip side to that, David, is the data might suggest that that car shouldn't be with that person. So companies will start removing company car access as they realize, I don't need to provide a company car if you're going to work from home four days a week. So I might, might upset a few uh, a few managers in the workforce, but that's the reality. You can start reducing the requirement. I'm not trying to define the future, <laughs> but merely define the parameters and the pushes and pulls yeah. that may affect it. The other one is that as we develop our understanding of telematics, that that can have a very clear understanding in terms of road pricing. Instead of individual tolls on roads, there is a notion of I will charge you per kilometre. Yeah, yeah. Usage-based um, so, uh, usage insurance is a big market, again, in other countries. Exactly, yeah. And again, I think there is another company here. It's also a usage base in terms of government policy. Right. Because electric vehicles can't get road tax through petrol. The culmination of the technology is something that may well help us move to a user base. Currently, we have a a terrible system. You get charged tolls, for example, on the road we want you to use. There's a whole pile of problems with our current policy. A A road user charge might say, I will charge X amount per kilometre, depending on the route you take and the time of day and anything. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that's a great, great point. Again, not something I've, I've thought about. Yeah, it, it, I suppose the manufacturers have a bit of responsibility. They have that all this data lives within the vehicle. They just don't allow access to it. They at some point it will open. So if they can open that, and there's some government intervention there, so look, the vehicles you could sell, we can access through what, whatever system. Absolutely, yeah. It's, it's suddenly a it's a usage based um, methodology, and the data is there today. So yeah, it's a really good point. And it's to do with the way you use it, not necessarily just how whether you're a good or a bad person. Yeah. It's not necessarily as judgmental as some may take it to be. It's a practical reality that is encouraging, that can encourage you to a better, I say, behaviour, not in terms of goody or baddie, <laughs> but in how you use the vehicle. Yeah, absolutely. You drive a bit smoother. I mean, if you're driving from point A to point B and it's 50 kilometres, You'd be amazed at how different those trips vary from one driver to the next. There is obviously a utopia. You know, they're not speeding, they're not distracted, they're not something half-breaking, they're in and around the speed limit. But there is big variances on that. Now that vehicle's driven then dictates the insurance, you know, calculation, but also from an emissions point of view, fuel consumption point of view, all the stuff that we know. There's huge variances. So if you, you know, if you measure it, you manage it, if we report on it and you focus on the outliers, that you know that fifteen percent who drive too quick, who take too many risky decisions, who are distracted, why is everyone paying for Bob's bad driving? You know, it's not doesn't seem fair. Back to that sort of pulled pricing. So, 
And like you said, it, it sounds like over time with the data sharing amongst the different organizations, we can get to a more equitable position where people are paying less because their risk is less and their usage is less. We don't need to do trigger communication based on what we may or may not think. We need to progress and evolve, I think, in this regard. So lovely to talk to you. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks, David. Nice to meet you. And that was Simon Donovan, the Executive General Manager of Fuse Fleet, getting to use information more extensively but more productively as well. And this has been Overdrive. My thanks to Fred Brain, Simon Donovan, Toyota Australia, Mazda Australia and Mark Wesley for their help with this program. Overdrive is syndicated across Australia on the Community Radio Network. For more information, go to drivenmedia.com.au or look through the socials, search for Cars Transport Culture. I'm David Brown. Thanks for listening.